Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I'll be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, today I want to do a, do a quick uh, episode just about a very specific topic and that is the virtue of ongoing campaigns without a set ending. And it's just something that I've uh, sort of stumbled across in the last uh, little while. Um, there, there's a lot of um, chatter about, um, you know, there's plenty of uh, advice you can find online and elsewhere about running uh, RPG campaigns that have a fixed ending date and uh, or like they have a set date, you know, set structure to them or, or whatever. And I, I want to go on a different tangent with it. Um, and I want to talk about the, not in a one way being right, one way being wrong. I just want to talk about the virtues that I think that you, see, you can see in a ongoing campaign with no set end date. So let's get to the episode. So the reason, there's, there's a couple of reasons that have prompted this campaign, or this campaign, this uh, uh, episode, uh, one of which is um, the reading material that I've been going through quite a bit in the last little while. Um, as of uh, the time of recording, last night I finished reading uh, Tom Scioli's really, really cool uh, Fantastic Four um, Grand Design, uh, which is a sequel to um, Ed Piscor's uh, very cool X-Men grand design. And if you're not familiar with those works, what they are is basically like uh, uh, an effort by uh, an individual cartoonist to provide their own spin on a uh, the history of a uh, Marvel Comics uh, team that have a very, very long, sprawling history uh, to them. Specifically with... Um, I don't know if this is intended, but in both of those cases, you can track the number of the creators uh, involved to a very uh, a very low number as well, too. Uh, Fantastic Four, or the, I'm sorry, the um, X-Men have uh, uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby initially, and then they had, uh, uh, it's not Roy Thomas, uh, Len Wein uh, was uh, writing X-Men, and then uh, it was, uh, I can't remember if Denny O'Neill was in those early days or not. I know that Neil Adams was, but I can't remember and then uh, Chris Claremont, of course, wrote uh, X-Men for like 16 or 17 years or something like that. Uh, so there was a singular, you know, um, author behind those years and years and years of stories that are coming out on a monthly basis. Every single month, there's a new issue coming out. And then um, as things were added on, and in Fantastic Four's case, you've got um, Stanley and Jack Kirby doing 102 or 103 issues together. And then it goes to, I think it's Roy Thomas who wrote for a while. And then there were some other people who were writing in between. And then John Byrne uh, came on board. And uh, John Byrne wrote for quite a while. And each of those had really substantial contributions to the Fantastic Four. But it was um, it was built on the accumulation of story that had come before. And the Fantastic Four one in particular really um, Im impressed me. I've not actually read the original uh, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee uh, run the original 103 issues or whatever, and I, I absolutely am tracking them down now in uh, omnibus format because it's just it's crazy how many incredible ideas are coming out all the time and then have um, uh, payoff as they were building that world. Like the uh, I've been listening to a uh, a terrific uh, YouTube channel called uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe. 
hosted by um, Ed Piscor, the author of uh, X-Men Grand Design, or the artist and art author behind that, and um, uh, Jim Rugg, who's another uh, cartoonist. And they've been doing, there's a lot of different series they have on there, but one of them is, is reviewing the um, uh, series of old Wizard magazines uh, that the uh, came out from the beginning of Wizard when it was published until the later day. Those who are you know, younger uh, may not, or who may not be interested in comics, may not be familiar with Wizard Magazine, but it was a real style maker uh, at the time of the uh, early 90s during the comics kind of boom and then through the bust and uh, the creation of uh, Image Comics and the, you know, uh, bankruptcy of Marvel, um, death of Superman, uh, crippling of Batman, lots of really uh, uh, kind of important uh, or consequential storylines. But one of the things they keep talking about is those original long-form stories and I've been thinking about our in our campaigns we have on the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel, the um, the ones that really uh, have uh, legs under them are things like the Night Below campaign, which is about 107 sessions right now, and our Legacy of the Crystal Shard game, which has uh, 50 something, 55, 56 sessions in it. And um, Legacy of the Crystal Shard, I have been sort of pushing towards. A, an end point uh, now because uh, the game was originally kicked off as part of a um, an effort to give players during the pandemic uh, to give them an opportunity to uh, to have something to keep themselves busy you know uh, or to invest in so I was running it twice a weekend you know on I wouldn't well alternating twice a weekend then one time on the weekend I since changed it because people are getting back to you know different routines now and Gaming groups have sort of other people who did not have anything else to do have found other things to to do in that time. So it's been harder to have a consistent um, number of people behind that. Uh, and the other campaign that that's actually in the around the fifties right now uh, as well is our astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea game. And um, the thing that's really interesting, well, I guess for two of those, Night Below and for Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, I have no earthly idea when they're going to end. I don't have any plans in place. I don't have a grand scheme that I'm going through to try and, you know, put things uh, to uh, to bed at a certain point. I largely, I have an idea in mind of things that might happen in the campaign and some ideas I've got for, you know, events that might happen later on or whatever, but it's really subject to what the players are doing and how things happen, you know, like uh, if characters die or, you know, then that will require some kind of adjustments. Uh, for the most part, I figured out what is going to be happening in each individual episode. And the more I've been reading about, and I guess, for, like, first off, there's absolutely no way I'm comparing any of uh, my campaigns that we run on the uh, Dungeon Musings YouTube channel uh, to the creation of Fantastic Four or, you know, Claremont's run on X-Men and then the incredible cultural impact that those things had. Um, I want to use them as a frame of reference in... in uh, something that I think is unique to um, ongoing stories that don't have an end. You know, the soap opera kind of quality that comes from um, monthly comic books. And I'm going to back out the business part of that stuff because there, obviously there's a business reason why they're doing that. But I want to talk about just sort of the value and sort of the happy, um, the happy uh, discoveries that can come from that. So... One of the things that has happened over the course of the Night Below campaign, and, and well, I mean, to be honest, all of them, is that I will find times where we have sort of impromptu arcs. I don't plan them necessarily to be arcs, but we'll introduce a problem 
The players will engage with the problem, they'll come to understand the problem, and then thus far, they've come to surmount the problem. Sometimes they need to take a step back and, and reassess, but that's largely the, the process for each of these different campaigns. And each individual you know, issue, as it were, has events that, that happen, but it builds to the overall total of what's going on. And there are events that happen in the past that then pay off going forward. And not always do we have uh, things come back to circle around and, and uh, hit up with characters. But that's sort of how I've been writing most of this stuff. You know, we've seen uh, problems that have been introduced early on, or not necessarily even problems, but like aspects of the world that have been introduced early on that have then cycled back through later on and over the course of time have had the benefit of context so players can understand that even though they did not understand the context of whatever they were being exposed to early on, now they have like, oh Jesus, that means X, Y, Z, you know, uh, is true or... I'm trying to think of an, an example here without giving spoilers uh, for any of the campaigns, but there are things that have regular viewers of those campaigns will know that there are things that have happened before that sort of, you know, uh, that continue to, to resonate in those campaigns or recurring presences, things that have been introduced and become reliable parts of those worlds. When you see those change, it then also gives the, it has greater meaning and, and greater import. And I'm not writing uh, any of the stuff to to be, you know, um, to, to for, for that eventual later, uh, you know, uh, the the later impact necessarily. Um, I, I I'm writing really for the episode, as it were, and uh, trying to keep a you know the the ship in the, in the right direction, and then just correcting as I need to go. Um, but uh, it also means that when I'm doing those things when I'm when I'm trying to add new material in or whatnot, I've got that wealth of old material to draw on. And that's particularly what I was thinking of in these um, in these older things. To be honest, like one of our recent introductions to our astonishing swordsman and sorcerers of Hyperborea game is this character that to be honest I made up on the fly because I did not know what to we had a, uh, one of those situations where there would have been a TPK and there was only uh, a couple of players there and they had enough points left over of the narrative meta-currency that we used to avoid their death. So none of them were actually going to die, and I needed to justify it. So I sort of on the fly came together with this idea for an NPC called the Monkey Meister, who's this like mysterious cyborg who has cybernetically augmented uh, apes with him as well, too. The Ash game has a, a substantial amount of that like weird science, you know, uh, science fantasy stuff in, in our setting. And... Um, Kind of threw him out there because I thought it'd be neat and it'd be an interesting mystery for the characters to, to deal with. Didn't had some rough ideas of how he might fit in, but I certainly at the time of the session did not have an idea of how he fit in. And um, I, again, I'm not making a comparison here, but there's an old character uh, called Diablo from uh, Fantastic Four, and Stan Lee, when he was around, would often use him as an example of a deadline-oriented, you know, villain. Where they're like, he thought that Diablo was the stupidest thing that they had ever introduced. Diablo is a like a mystical alchemist villain who has an incredible design. Like it's a really, it's it's a very um, you know sixties look to it. There's a lot of purple and green in his costume, but if you look up Diablo, it's a very distinctive uh, um, costume that this villain has. And uh, he was going to like his role in the original stories was um, to use the elemental powers or whatever of the Fantastic Four to his own ends. 
But it was a character that was introduced by, by virtue of deadlines. And that character ended up getting a lot more play with uh, the John Byrne um, run on Fantastic Four. And even uh, John Byrne, when he did Alpha Flight, also made use of uh, uh, Diablo to, to contextualize one other character. So it's clearly a character that did resonate, you know, even though it was, a, it was you know, dictated by the necessity of the deadline. Uh, it still ended up being an interesting character, or at least other people took it and made it an interesting character. And I do think it is a really, it's a great visual design on the character as well, too, and kind of a, a little different from what the other, the, in terms of the um, the alchemy. It's not, I mean, there's a little bit of Doctor Doom in there, too, but it allows you to explore some of that stuff without having the, uh, the necessary, you know, personal animus between uh, uh, Reed Richards and uh, Victor Von Doom. But... In any event, the reason I mention all this stuff is because it just is one of those things that I didn't really think to, you know, I didn't think of uh, ahead of time. I threw out there because I thought it'd be, it'd be interesting for, you know, the uh, the session. As it were, I was writing for the deadline. But now that he's out there, it's really opened up this, this incredible amount of new ideas and new options for that particular campaign. And, and it's not the first time that I've had that happen where I just thought like, you know what, let's throw this into the mix and see what happens. You know, uh, and um, one of the things that our characters are doing in our Night Below campaign at present is going to revisit with these um, this friendly stone giant clan that they had met before too, and that sort of prompted or came from um, the players uh, being of uh, you know the players are the ones who sort of pushed um, me to, to sort of develop that that idea. One of them was asking in a session about, and I think in character even about the history of the walls, and I sort of described them as being built by, of uh, this one keep, and I described them as being built by stone giants or something like that. It appeared that they were not built by dwarves, but, but by a similar type of aesthetic. And that sort of built on from the characters were like, oh, well, let's go and do this. And it, it likewise, too, it pushed me into a, an area of the narrative that I didn't expect to, and it led to some really, really fun sessions, and also uh, a pretty substantial transformative moment for at least one of the characters and one of the star moments of another character. So one of the characters had a, went through a dramatic transformation, literally, through uh, the, that whole story arc. And another character had one of his, one of the um, most memorable moments where he dropped a lake on a, uh, a series of adversaries. So it was just, you know, and again, like it was not, um, it wasn't something that was planned. And where that world just keeps having more stuff, you know, added to it. And it becomes a really engaging, ongoing thing. And, you know, I think that if, uh, for one, if you'd asked me before whether I thought this game would go, you know, hundred more than 100 sessions, I, I would not have uh, said that would, be, that would have been likely. And if you asked me what, you know, um, what's the difference between, like, the, the, the sort of, the keeping those individual sessions going, you know, for so long, how do you distinguish any of them? How does that compare to some of the one shots? Cause I run quite a bit, a few, or lately at least have been running quite a few one shots. One shots are really funny, are really fun. They're real sexy. Cause they, you know, they just, you get to really throw caution to the wind. You don't have to worry about the consequences of the events in the, in the one shot. And you can really just, you know, kind of go big. But the thing I love about, the um, and I love those uh, those uh, one shots too. Like don't, don't, it's a different, you know, as I've mentioned on the channel before or on this uh, 
uh, podcast before. It's a matter of right tool for the right job. But the thing that is so awesome about these ongoing games, and the thing that's so awesome about those early comics, and also with, um, I've been revisiting um, Invincible. With the At the time of recording, Amazon has been releasing uh, episodes of their uh, new animated series with uh, in, set on, based off of, uh, let's see, it's um, Robert Kirkman, Corey Walker, and uh, Ryan Otley, uh, who are the creators of Invincible. And if you're not familiar with that, it's kind of like a, what if, it's a kind of more most postmodern-ish take on a character who's effectively Spider-Man with like Superman's powers, but also a family component in a world that feels very much like a mashup of the Marvel and DCU, but also its unique thing. Uh, it was an ongoing series that was written um, to try and, and, and intentionally be that kind of, you know, slow build. Uh, one of the things that the, I mentioned Cartoonist Kayfabe is, one of the things they talk about is how the Marvel Universe accumulated by, you know, um, picking up detritus, story detritus. It's the car, the can, the, as the books were coming out and as the writers were introducing new characters and then drawing connections to different characters, because that's what they really, that's really up until the, uh, the nineties, that's really the thing that made, uh, Marvel different from, um, DC was that, you know, um, there wasn't as much like, uh, revisioning, uh, like re revisions of, uh, history or, um, alternate timelines or just ignoring certain time uh, storylines. Like, everything that happened in the Marvel Universe had a connection to everything else. And by the 90s, that sort of went off the rails, and uh, you can't make a lick of sense of Marvel right now, and Marvel had to go through the same kind of continuity reboot that... Uh, it's a soft reboot, but a reboot nonetheless. Uh, in the same vein as uh, DC's 1985 series, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and the uh, and I don't mean that it to mean that one is better than the other. I like I, I love my DC comics. I, I love uh, I think I probably have more connection to those characters than I do with the Marvel characters. But I uh, I love the Marvel characters as well too, and I love Marvel comics. And the, that's the thing that is I think really distinct about that is that during those times you could see you know like the editorial control was a lot uh, firmer, so you know you could see. Spider-Man swing through the background of a Fantastic Four comic, or you could see someone, you know, Thor uh, referenced and, and the events of the Thor comic referenced in an uh, issue of Iron Man. Um, that's the thing that is, you know, that I think is really interesting is that, that, that um, and is it, something you can draw for a positive about this type of ongoing campaign is the, uh, the persisting world. And the feeling of scope that can come from just going on and on and on. And that's different. That's a different benefit from the sort of, you know, deadline-driven, happy uh, developments that you can get, you know, from, from these kinds of ongoing uh, games. And if you approach it the way that those old-school um, comic writers did as well, where, like, they may be writing to... Uh, a grand finale or a specific, you know, um, grand storyline or whatnot, um, they are, that's not the purpose of the story. The purpose of the story is to give a good, you know, good episode, good issue, good session every month. And from there, you know, get you to come back for, for the next month. 
And then just by virtue of the same voices going through and telling those stories for such a long time, you end up with that added value, the added connection to those. You know, if you've seen the introduction of Dr. Doom and then the, you know, multiple plots of Dr. Doom, and then he comes back and something is completely different, you know, that has a greater weight to it. And you don't need to plan that because they certainly didn't plan it. You know, it was, it was the, um, the natural conglomeration of the disparate elements that were introduced over the course of the story with an eye to trying to make it all make sense. That's what made those emergent worlds so engaging and, and what made the Marvel Universe such a distinct thing from the DC Universe, right? One of the elements, there's other elements, obviously, that uh, the art, the stories, the uh, setting in the real world instead of fictional cities, so all different things, but I want to focus on the things that I think that I can draw parallels to in good ongoing games that don't have a defined ending to them. Now, um, if you're running a level-based game, like uh, D&D, I mean, to be honest, if you're running any game, there is going to be a, a date when the game will just stop responding. You know, it won't be... Um, you'll either have too many levels for your characters for you to carry on, and you'll have to... Your, end, your game will either not gain new levels, or you'll just have to, you know, um, expand into different territories or create new characters... Uh, or you, if you're doing a, a game or playing a game that has uh, like experience points or advancements or milestones or whatever, you'll get to the point where your characters are no longer, um, they've got so much stuff, they're no longer recognizable as uh, the characters from the originals. Uh, or at least from the way the original game functioned. And it breaks the game. You know, like I've heard uh, high-level play in a lot of RPGs, that's the complaint that you feel is that the, the game mechanics were designed for that optimal low to mid-level experience and just thought wasn't given to end game. And I found that in a bunch of games, you know, like the uh, even our um, Iron Kingdoms game, which is the closest Iron Kingdoms RPG, the edition that came out um, while 4th edition was out. It was the closest we've come to playing characters through from inception right till end game. And by the end game, I ended up having to introduce a whole bunch of house rules to try and manage the the sort of breakdown of the math that was uh we were seeing in the in the course of that campaign but that game as well too is another one where just by going and going and going it ends up anna don't bite that don't bite that get your ball yeah good girl sorry my girl's trying to bite my coffee table go on um so uh the reason i i guess i wanted to record this episode is because you know, there's, um, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, advice out there about, and a lot of people commenting on like planning their campaigns and, and whatnot. And, and like, uh, you know, trying to, especially for streamers, uh, who want to plot out sort of what they're, you know, what's going to be addressed in the campaign and what's going to happen. And, and, and I don't mean to say that they're scripting it out in the same way that where there's a railroad that's driving things along. Um, I think that, you know, it's a decision, especially for for streamers. It, it, there's the decision of like, well, how long are we going to play this game? How long are we going to keep the show going and and go on? Our channel is a little different in the sense that we just play, and uh, I, I, you know, I am a little bit cognizant of certain one shots that we run because we know people um, like you know viewers like the the game. Conan in particular too is always a a favorite on the channel. Uh, Champions is a sort of underground hit on our our channel as well too. Uh, there's folks who really enjoy us revisiting that. 
Um, but I think that if you're, you know, uh, in your home game, obviously you just keep on going, you know, start, start playing something and then see what comes from that. Uh, that's what we did with our Night Below. That's what we did with our Legacy of the Crystal Shard. Legacy of the Crystal Shard has formed a little bit more of a cohesive um, kind of arc to it where the characters are seeing a, a goal that they're all you know, singularly working towards. That's less the case in Night Below. There's a threat that's, that's present for sure, but they are much more free to pursue larks you know, than, uh, than what we're seeing in uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shard. And... I think that that is, that's one of the, so again, like I'm not talking about one being better than the other one. Uh, so I don't really want to engage in, in, in that thing. What I want to strictly talk about is the value and, and focus, I guess, your thoughts on the value that comes from not planning that stuff. Like without that kind of just herky jerky development of story on a monthly, you know, uh, month to month basis, with some, you know, uh, carefully considered introductions of characters and, and you know, arcs with, uh, with different uh, um, featured characters and enemies and whatnot, um, combined with characters that are deadline-driven, your Diablos, you know, of the world. Um, the, the, the emergence of the connected uh, world that is the X-Men, you, you know, corner of the Marvel Universe and the Fantastic Four corner of the Marvel Universe, both of which at different times were the primary drivers of that comic book company, you know? Fantastic Four is what launched the Marvel uh, Universe, the uh, Marvel Comics uh, version at least, and the uh, X-Men are the thing that uh, rode Marvel. They were the, you know, um, hands down the biggest sellers through the 80s and 90s. Spider-Man took over shortly afterwards and became a much more popular character, but, you know, that's the thing that really, um, through the 80s and 90s, was the critical darling and, and, the, and the main popular uh, book for everybody. So, the Avengers were, and Iron Man and whatnot, everyone who's a big deal in the Marvel Universe now, those were all second stringers and second bananas through uh, much of the, you know, of the uh, 80s and uh, into the 90s, uh, especially 90s uh, Avengers comics. But... In any event, the um, the reason I mention all this stuff is just to, to you know, um, to recognize the, you know, the real magic that comes from that kind of unstructured month-to-month or day-to-day or whatever, however often you play your game. A night blow, we play usually two times a week, and it continues. It's a different... Uh, set of players, you know, each time. Uh, sometimes we've got a full house, sometimes we've only got three players. But the cool thing is, is that all that stuff, every issue matters, or at least I try to make every, you know, issue matter. And the accumulated world that I now get to draw on as, um, as a DM from introducing those elements and stitching them together and making it make, at least in, in uh, my mind, a cohesive sense, you know, and in in retrospect, you know, I, I've talked a lot on the, uh, on both on uh, this uh, podcast and on the YouTube channel about the No Prize, you know, and uh, the No Prize. For those who are, have not heard my spiel or spiel on this before, it was something that Stan Lee invented to uh, to reward fans who wrote in and who would point out a continuity error in the in the story or in one of the comics but then also justify why that was not a continuity error. Say like, well, it appears that, you know, Dr. Doom was here 
and he said this, but then you've also got Doctor Doom in another comic doing X, Y, Z. It would seem to be an error, but in actuality, it's because it's a Doombot that appears in this and this, and that's why you know he sounds so different from a uh, from Doom in any other time. You know, as an example of it, and I mean it's uh, that kind of intentional buy-in that you know no there's there's a way to make all of this make sense let's just figure out what that is that's part of what you i mean for myself like that's part of what i enjoy about these ongoing emergent games is that it um it, it allows you to engage in that fun you know game as it were of like okay so how does this shit fit together you know um or does it fit together is it something discreet is it whatever and it is usually very easy to do that this is you know, the, some, something that also was mentioned in uh, some of the um, uh, episodes of uh, Cartoonist Kayfabe is how, you know, the job of the writer is to write themselves into a corner and then the, where the writer really steps up is figuring out how to get out of there, you know? And that's not, obviously, like, there's a bunch of different ways to approach writing and plot and whatever else, too, but one of the ways, if you're a pantser, if you're writing by the seat of your pantser kind of um, person, and there's a lot of DMs who... Uh, who run a lot of games, that's what you have to be. You need to embrace that ability to just say, all right, I need to make sense of this now. And if you've been building up this collective world, you know, and if you've been paying attention to it and taking careful notes or whatever, you're going to be able to draw back on that stuff and be like, oh, actually this connects to this thing here. Uh, and no, I didn't necessarily plan it that way, but who the fuck cares if I did or did not? What matters is that if the if it feels like it is authentic, if it feels like, yes, that does make sense, why that would all work out. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's just, reading through that um, Fantastic Four grand design was really amazing. Like, if, if you are a fan of Marvel Comics history and, uh, you, you know, you're willing to read something that doesn't look like a Marvel comic. For, for myself, like, just like with role-playing games, my taste in uh in artists runs the full gamut it's, it's really a matter of the right person for the for the job at hand tom scioli's art looks nothing like john byrne or jack kirby or you know any of the other amazing artists who have worked george perez worked on uh fantastic four uh john buscema uh sal buscema like not, not doesn't look like any of those artists um but it is it does a terrific job of conveying this great ongoing story like the big picture of the grand design as it were of what has been going on you know and what stitches together over the course of that time same thing with um that one's cheaper than what the uh, x-men grand design is uh x-men grand, grand design is is phenomenal you can get it in a collected version uh which is is not cheap um but it's uh, a really same thing like an incredible artistic achievement and a wonderful way of looking at the unified story or a unified story represented by those first, you know, from uh, the 1960s up until the 1990s of X-Men stories and how all of it fits together. And it's just, uh, you know, it makes me, for one, appreciate the work that goes in, you know, month in, month out, back in the day for when there was, you know, there would be a writer who would be able to be on a series and write it for 15 years, you know, um, the works of, uh, Robert Kirkman. I mean, you know, Robert Kirkman is not to everyone's tastes. Uh, he's the guy who wrote Walking Dead. He wrote, uh, uh, Invincible. 
He wrote uh, a bunch of other kind of spin-off uh, titles, and he has some new on or current ongoing books as well. Uh, the thing that I love about that is that there is he's writing for the book, but he's also writing for the trade, the the six issue collected edition. He's also writing for the twenty four issue hardback. He's also writing for the you know big omnibus one as well, forty eight issue or fifty issue omnibus, and that's something I think to. But I get like on top of that, he's also writing for the individual issue. Every individual issue gives you something cool, so something interesting happens. And I think that if you do kick off a campaign and you decide to go along like that, not only is there less work for you, like you have a lot less stuff you have to have sorted out. You don't need to hit your specific story beats, you don't need to hit your timelines. You know, um, this is if you are wanting to run a, a stream show for a set length of time, this is obviously not going to work for you. You know, um, this is something this, this advice is more towards if you want to run an ongoing game uh, with that doesn't have a set end date or if you want to run a uh, an ongoing um, uh, what do you call it? it's a game at home where you're not there is no audience and there's no one uh, watching it. That's sort of the the value in that is, or the, the, the thing to think of is that all you really need to do is have a, some rough ideas of what might happen out there, be live to pursuing interests or things that, that, that interest you along the way. Like I'll tell you right now, like one of the things that has been really fun about, we're into our second or third year of our Ash game right now. And the thing I'm loving about this game is that uh, I... Uh, I am able to regularly introduce new and interesting things to the game that interest me over in, in that I come across in other aspects of my life. You know, I'll come across something and be like, oh, this is really kind of, hmm, this is a neat idea. And the way that that campaign is set up is it is a, uh, you know, it really is a wide open, crazy uh, setting where I can incorporate pretty much, and there's nothing I could say no to, uh, even things that are clearly would not fit in like a traditional fantasy game, but even our night below one too. I, I read something interesting about uh, stone giants at one point, and sort of that's what was lurking around the back of my brain. So when we, when the players opened the door for that, I was like, "Yep, I can dr throw that stuff in there." And yeah, I mean, it's um, I, I I guess you know the the thing that to take away maybe from this is that the there, there is a very specific, uh, creative and unexpected, unexpected magic that can come. Something so flaky in this episode that can come from an unplanned, deadline-driven type of campaign, you know. And the spontaneity and the unexpected twists that come from that stuff, from introducing that stuff, it really does help maintain your level of interest as a DM. Um, I, if one of the reasons why I'm such a, I'm so poorly equipped to run a uh, adventure path type game is that when I know what the steps are, it's boring to me to just be like bringing them through. And now we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. If I know every step they're going to go along through, that doesn't interest me. Uh, it, what interests me is when the players do something and the world changes as a result of that, you know, and that, that might not be that, uh, you know, that might be something like, well, even like it was something as simple as uh, 
the way that the players reacted to goblins, you know, regular viewers of our Night Below campaign will know that uh, there's, you know, there was a very different uh, group of goblins that the players in my game encountered uh, than any other players in Night Below. I, that was the first time I substantially went off script. And the reason was because the, the, what was planned in that, it made no sense. The way the players were working and the way the players were valuing uh, or responding to uh, to things they were encountering was just, it was not going to line up with what was expected in the campaign. And rather than just being, okay, well, because you are going to be going different, it would be like... Those who, who are familiar with the Night Below campaign will know that if your characters are particularly hostile towards goblins, um, there's a whole, I won't spoil anything, but there's a whole section of the campaign that becomes kind of unplayable then because the players just won't have an opportunity to be exposed to it. So that was my first cue to be like, all right, we're doing something different and we went in a completely different direction and that's just set the tone for the rest of the campaign and has built and built and built and built, you know, forward from that. So the reason I wanted to record this episode is, you know, th this is something that I, it really clicked today uh, when I was thinking more about uh, Fantastic Four Grand Design, uh, just why, like why it was so good and, and to really appreciate the majesty of the accomplishment, the story building accomplishment that Jack Kirby and Stan Lee achieved with those first 103 issues. Uh, it's, it is phenomenal to think how much of the world uh, that we recognize as the Marvel Universe, either in the, you know, in the films or in the, uh, what do you call it, in the uh, comics, is a, uh, a carry-on from that specific run, you know, from, from elements that were introduced or built upon and not everything was was uh, necessarily fresh to that namor existed before uh fantastic four had existed before but so many amazing stuff and amazing things that were uh taken and then recooked and re-offered up as a as a different thing so it made me realize that you know that's that monthly grind if you're the sole author of it and there is that monthly grind uh, not every campaign needs to be this way not every campaign needs to, you know, uh, to have that kind of loose structure and the undefined ending to it or the perpetual feeling to it. But this is the sort of, I think this is the reason why people, when they talk about those games that have been like, I've been playing with the same group for 10 years or 20 years or whatever, and we're still playing the same characters. Uh, you hear that with champions. You hear that with D&D. &D, um, you hear that with other games as well. Uh, not, not Call of Cthulhu, not surprisingly, but with those other, those games, it's, I, it, it is that, um, that, you know, that emergent uncertain ending that comes, I think, uh, from comics, because I can't think of another form of media that has that monthly, you know, in and out, in and out, in and out for year after year after year. The longest running TV shows are only in the like 15, 20 year span, right? Like, and, and, and most of those are sitcoms. They're not uh, ongoing game. I'm not even sure there is Bonanza, maybe. I know that was on the, on the air for quite some time. But, and The Rifleman, I think, was on for quite some time. But each of those are sort of story of the week things. It's not the building on the uh, what came before the way that 
comics and soap operas. I guess soap operas, that's, that's the reason. So there's the difference. Soap operas are the thing that can, continues on, you know, day after day after day after day. And yeah, so that's, I guess, what I wanted to, um, I think what I wanted to say is just to, you know, in particular, if you are someone who is struggling to get that, that, that grand plan together, you know, um, or trying to get that grand campaign off the, off the, off its feet. I've got a friend who, uh, I, I know, uh, will never listen to uh, this podcast because he doesn't have time to listen to the podcast, but he's been telling me for 30 years now about a campaign that he's going to run or wants to run, uh, involving, um, a, I mean, an evolving series of different games, but it's never going to get played. It is way too big in scope. And if you haven't pulled it, the fact that he hasn't pulled the trigger on it to date and just got going, you know, um, that, that's something that I think is, is lost. Uh, and it's a shame because I think like, it sounds like it would be a lot of fun, but it's only ever going to inhabit his mind as opposed to exposing it and, and involving other players and other people and seeing how that idea changes. And, uh, I think that if you're, if you're finding yourself with some sort of paralysis about getting a game going, especially if you don't know where a game is going in terms of uh, um, a campaign, you know, um, Sly Flourish in, in one of the books that uh, he put out has great advice on just just <laughs> plan for the session, plan for the arc, that's it. If you can figure out what's going to, you know, what's going to happen in the next campaign or the next game after that, after that, get that first game off of your plate, get going, and then you know, and allow yourself time to get through it. And then you can plan from there. And once you've gone through that first adventure, you're going to have some, a much better sense of who the characters are, who the players are, how they interact with each other, and how they interact with the world that you're building. And then throw the next thing in. And never be afraid to throw weird shit in. You know, we've had one rocky point in our uh, Ash game where I nearly killed everybody and then mutated everybody, and then threw everybody into a brand new setting, but it ended up coming out stronger, and I think more interesting than what we uh, had from before. And, you know, it's a testament to the players who are willing to continue to explore in every one of the campaigns that, that I run. So I don't want to take this for granted, because there are people who just want to play through, you know, a set ongoing, or uh, set campaign. Uh, or an adventure path, you know, they want to play through that, uh, that arc of the adventure path rather than meander all over. And there's absolutely nothing, I don't mean to sound um, critical of that style of gameplay in the least, that is absolutely fine. But if you do have players who are willing to embrace that kind of unexpected direction, you know, and those uh, curveballs that are going in, you know, it, um, I think it can suffer through rocky periods as well as celebrate the great periods and it benefits from the continued uh, motion of that uh, of that evolving and unfolding story uh, so I think that's it I'm hoping this this um, made it clear again like I, I'm not sure I'm giving directly useful specific do x uh, and then you know your campaign will be fine but you know, I think that allowing yourself to see what's happening and then build with what, throw in different, you know, rest, I'm, I'm using different metaphors here now, but throwing in things that you didn't expect, you know, 
or things that you think, well, I don't know what this will do to the campaign, but toss it in there, see what happens, and then see how the players and the characters and the world reacts to that stuff. You know, and um, if you're playing an ongoing sandbox type thing, this is what gives your, your game um, the story element of it. Uh, there are random elements that, that will happen in the game and whatnot, but there, if you, unless you're like intentionally making an obtuse or you know illogical game, you're going to be stitching stuff together, and it will add, allow you to add more um, meaningfully contextual set pieces to it that you didn't anticipate right from the get-go. And I think that's part of what makes those other worlds, you know, the worlds of uh, Fantastic Four, the worlds of the um, Claremont X-Men, so meaningful. Uh, and I think why I, you know, I'm for myself and our players, why those ongoing campaigns are so special. Again, this doesn't mean it's the only way to do things, but I think there is something that only comes from that, uh, in t that relentless kind of, you know, session after session after session after session after session kind of play where you're having to make it. You know, you're not scheduling when you're ready to run a game. You got a game date, we got to go and we got to run something. So let's have something ready. Not all of them are going to be gems, but if you keep them, even those duds like Diablo can end up being gems later on, seen in a different light. So with that, I'll bring my rambling uh, defense of a ongoing, unplanned campaign to an end. All right, so I guess the last thing I'll close with is my, um, I sort of, you know, my wish list of games that I think would be, I would just, I would love to, you know, to to see play like this. Um, and it part of it is prompted by, I, I did sit up uh, last night quite late and I was reading through a bunch of games in preparation for our upcoming gaming marathon in uh, June We'll be uh, returning to our annual gaming marathon tradition, and uh, I'm running a full weekend of one game with a bunch of uh, players and a whole bunch of different sessions, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, and in preparation for that, I was reading through a couple, there's a couple of games in particular. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons 2nd Edition, I think, um, for, for and this is a completely subjective thing, I think is the very best version of D&D. Uh, for my sensibilities for this type of game. I, I like to have more modern flourishes to my AD&D or to my Dungeons & Dragons uh, than what, uh, say, First Edition offers or OD&D or, or even Basic. So I feel that AD&D 2 is a better fit, but um, uh, Third gets a little too... From, for, well, I mean, for different reasons, uh, I feel like Third, Fourth, Fifth, Pathfinder 1, Pathfinder 2 just don't, don't do as um, as good of a a job of allowing the DM to just keep running and see what happens, you know, uh, for, for a variety of reasons I've talked about on the channel before or on the podcast before. But, um, so AD and D second is obviously a, a very, very big standout on this. Um, I think if I was not running, uh, the great Pendragon campaign, I think Pendragon would be very interesting for this too. And the reason I, I ex exert, or uh, I, I take the Great Pandragon campaign is because it is amazing, but it has a structure to it. Shit happens in certain years, you know, and you can obviously shift that stuff around. There's nothing preventing you from telling your own version of it, but I feel that it's it's a little more rigid than, um, especially with the different periods of years. Like what I found when I ran it 
is I wanted to run something in the Uther period, but I really, you know, like in the campaign as written, um, you uh, you can't, the, the sort of like the return of magic to Britain doesn't occur uh, until later in the uh, in the campaign, once Arthur is uh, is king. And um, it's obviously, it's not a really a big deal to just change things. Like I, I have uh, no difficulty changing uh, campaigns and whatnot. But the thing I worry about about that, things because there's such an uh, an elaborate lattice work uh, to that campaign structure i would be worried about disrupting things further down the line uh by virtue of introducing stuff earlier which is not the same thing as just stitching together you're you're plowing ahead into preset territory as opposed to trying to scramble together uh something that makes sense from what is behind you um so uh i think that would be good i think the um uh, Sword Chronicles is called now, but the uh, Song of uh, Ice and Fire um, RPG, I think, would also be a really interesting thing. I'm not familiar enough with the... I've only run it once, and I, I wasn't blown away by it, but I think I did a poor job of running the game, so I should really run that another time before deciding how I feel about it, but that would be a pretty interesting thing to see evolve. But the ones that really, really stand out to me right now is a superhero game, obviously. Um, and I, I'm undecided... The three sort of leading contenders that I think would be really great for ongoing campaigns that involve the kind of uh, subplot, soap opera kind of stuff that uh, we see in uh, superheroes would be um, Mayfair's DC Adventures, uh, would be uh, Hero Games Champions RPG, and um, would be actually Savage Worlds um the, with the superhero companion, uh, I think the thing that that uh, really stands out. I, I mean, I, I've uh, as of late become a bit infatuated with uh, Savage Worlds and the Adventure Edition. I think is fantastic. Uh, not not only and so the specific reason in, in a nutshell is because it has a ton of great fun sub mechanics for doing a whole bunch of different things and doing them in really kind of wild and um, exciting ways. You know, um, from random encounters to the way they structure mini encounters to the speed of play to the way combat plays out uh, to the amount of options and such. Like, it's it's a great game. It's just got a ton of different things in, in it that um, allow you to... Uh, oh, hi, sweetie. Um, Anna says hello to everybody. Um, there's a lot of ways that you can... Um, you, you can add more texture to the game and more, more complexity, but the complexity isn't a... Um, accumulated complexity. It doesn't feel like there's a bogging down of rules because, you know, even the most complex rules in Savage Worlds, they're no more than three paragraphs. So it, if you have to look it up, it really doesn't take you that long to get uh, familiar with that stuff. So overall, for, for me, for a, a looser style of play, I like that. I like the way that you can... Um, uh, the, the way that you get advancements in that campaign is by getting these things called advancements. And then every four advancements, you go up a tier and, and uh, that kind of carries on up until legendary tier. And then as you get more powerful, you gain access to more things, but you're not really getting that. That's only about 20 advancements before you're at end game. And which means that your characters, you're not seeing characters transformed into something dramatically different than what they were playing at first, uh, which means the game can have a lot of legs to it. But also with the release of the uh, Savage Pathfinder rules, um, they've also uh, given some alternate advancement uh, tracks. And it's one of those like blindingly obvious things. Like, of course we could have done this, but I never thought of it before. Like if I want a campaign to stretch out over say a hundred sessions, you know, uh, with Savage Worlds, we'll start off with new characters and then 
Um, either you can do what Iron Kingdoms does and give like one per session for the first, say, you know, 10 sessions, uh, and then slow it to two, and then slow it, you know, three or whatever. Uh, or you could just set a slower rate of advancement. You know, every three sessions, every four sessions, you're going to get an advancement. That means um, you'll have 25 advancements by the time we hit um, uh, to 100 sessions. And, you know, I mean, like that's you're not getting characters who are making substantial changes to their character uh, every time, but it's it does mean that you're seeing a good... A reliable pace of development, which I really, really loved about Iron Kingdoms. And because um, I like seeing players be able to be like, okay, cool, now I get to make this change to my character. And it's more often than not, if you do it that way, they make changes based on what's happened in the game as opposed to what they would like to happen. The other thing that is amazing about it is that they decouple the powers from all the other parts of the game. And I, 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 um, I think there might be other uh, RPGs that do that as well expressly, but I can't, none come to mind. Everything else, like you're buying your powers, building your powers and whatnot, at least for point-based games, they're all part and parcel of the same set of rules that you build your character with. Um, this is the only one where you build your powers and then your character will develop over time. Uh, the same way any other Savage Worlds character will develop. And I absolutely adore that. Uh, and the reason being is because that fits, I realize probably in, con in context, like that fits more with what I love about, you know, um, ongoing, you know, uh, persisting worlds in comics, like the Fantastic Four, like Spider-Man, like uh, the X-Men, where the changes and the developments to the character are things that are personal and are story-based as opposed to like getting new powers or getting new things like late 90s storytelling in comics you know now spider-man's got cosmic powers now he's got six arms now he's whatever you know like it it's um or you know the continual rollout of more, uh, gradually more and more powerful iron man armors uh through the uh the 90s that seemed i mean Iron Man is, is quite powerful now in comics, but it's more, uh, feels like there are, the character spreads more out than up, as it were. Uh, it's not that his repulsors do more damage or whatever. It feels like he's just capable of more things with his, uh, his suit. And um, that's something that I think Savage Worlds does fantastically well. Plus you uh, also get a, a way of um, modeling uh, different tiers of, um, uh, of power as well quite easily because of the game already models, you know, uh, a whole shit ton of other things in a, a relatively good scope uh, or good scale, I should say, not scope. Uh, so, yeah, any, so those three, I don't know what it would be, but those, any of those three would be, I think, really, really interesting ongoing games. Savage Worlds is the one I'm sort of leaning towards right now. Um, it doesn't quite fit the the high level. I'm really interested in, in um, uh, seeing players take on quite powerful characters like, you know, Green Lantern, Superman, the authority sort of scale of, of power, and then telling stories with that and see what, uh, what scale, you know, scope of story we can tell and see where the campaign goes as opposed to street level or whatever else. Like I, I don't, I think a lot of times um, the tendency is to run street level campaigns because those stories are a lot closer to uh, the stories from other um, other kinds of storytelling as opposed to um, high-powered, you know, uh, superpower or superhero stories. Those are more akin to either myths 
or really exotic sci-fi, you know? So, um, so those ones. And then uh, Star Trek Adventures as well, too. I took a real deep dive into Star Trek Adventures yesterday. Thoroughly read through all the rule sections, including the... Uh, Start the uh, advancements uh, rules and the um, Starship Combat rules. And man, oh man, oh man, that game would be phenomenal. I think would be a really, really good ongoing uh, uh, campaign uh, because you, the feeling of change and development that you would get as characters are not only, in, for those who aren't familiar with the game, this is the version uh, that is the current version of a Star Trek RPG based on uh, Modifius Entertainment's 2D20 system. Um, it's a much more streamlined version of the game than what, say, Conan is, uh, or, you know, uh, Infinity, or Mutant Chronicles 3. This is um, a, a streamlined version, closer to what you see in John Carter, or in Dishonored, uh, or in, two, eh, I mean, kind of like uh, what Acton Cthulhu is going to have. But the... Um, man, it, it is just a, it is a very light on its feet and adaptable game to give good structure using the, the mechanics of, of the, the 2d20 system and momentum and the, what are, were called like damage dice, I guess, in, uh, in other things, but are called challenge dice in this one to give game structure to a variety of different things, but still make it feel authentically track, um, and your characters don't just keep getting better at skills and whatnot. Like you have main characters, but then you also have supporting characters. And those supporting characters will develop over time and may end up becoming characters that people want to bring on certain missions or adventures or whatever, you know. And uh, it's just, I, I could see a, a fascinating campaign sprawling out before, you know, uh, if you set up the, the campaign in such a way that to have the kind of... Um, interesting uh things happening in the background the way uh that uh, you, that uh, ds9 rolled out um i think you could have a fantastic and again i'm not trying to compare any of my you know uh, make pretend games with uh, the achievements of the storytellers in in those uh in that series or any other star trek series but i think it could make for a really 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 fun and engaging uh game with a lot of reflective kind of um uh, not only uh, some time with where players being and the, the DM being reflective of what's happening to the characters and whatnot, but also to engage with some of the, you know, quote unquote ideas, the way that Star Trek stories do, you know, I, I, there's very few other RPGs apart from maybe the uh, Doctor Who RPG to a degree that you can engage with that kind of like where an adventure can be about an idea or about a concept or about a perspective um, that's, that to me is just fascinating. I, I would love to, to run that as well. Um, and then the last one, um, is, uh, The Witcher. And I've talked about The Witcher before on the podcast as well. Uh, I've only run The Witcher one time so far, but I just, I feel like I got a glimpse of some really fantastic possibilities, uh, with what you could do with that game over time. And, um, I mean, the setting is not something I'm, if, you know, enormously familiar with. I've read the gaming materials. I've read some supplemental stuff uh, on the wiki. I've read a, a, a World of Witcher book that I got. Uh, and I watched the TV show. But, I mean, I never read the books. I never played the video games in, in you know, beyond just some intro stuff. So it's not the world, necessarily, that, it, that is, is of interest to me. I, I feel like it's the possibility of what could, you know... 
what could come and and seeing what's happening over time. It feels like you start off with fairly capable characters, but also with lots of room to develop and lots of time to develop uh, because of how expensive you know development and whatnot is. But also, it's it's a dangerous, dangerous world. So lots of different ways where characters can have misfortune befall them. So it gives a... I don't know, man. I mean, I, I just think it... it, um, it, it and it's not like in the way that, say, Call of Cthulhu or AD&D 2nd or the old school AD... Uh, or old school D&D is where characters will just die. Um, you know, it's, it's that you have lasting consequence like... Uh, crippling injuries or the death of people. There's not resurrection in that world, right? So it's, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that that's just another one that it, it would be a wonderful game uh, in which to set a uh, an ongoing campaign to just see where things go and add different elements in, you know, while still giving a really great, you know, kind of monster of the week uh option for when you don't want to go back to like lore episodes kind of like what you know the better arcs of uh, x-files would be you know great uh, theater or uh, a great uh, monster of the week episodes combined with uh terrific um you know lore episodes i mean terrific obviously some people were not fans of those but i was at the time um i also stopped watching because it didn't feel like it was going nowhere anywhere <laughs> but you know what are you gonna do um so those are the things that i i just sort of uh, thought of and and i'll repeat again too those the, the two kind of um, works that got me thinking about this were X-Men Grand Design and Fantastic Four Grand Design by Ed Piscor and uh, Tom Scioli, respectively. Um, if you are fans of, um, you know, of uh, comics, um, in particular if you're, you know, for me, like my familiarity with the lore of Marvel and the backstory of Marvel, as it were, came from the, and same thing with DC for that matter, came from the sort of guides that came out in the mid-80s, the uh, uh, Handbook to the Marvel Universe and the, um, what do you call it, the um, DC Who's Who. And reading through these things, uh, like I, I didn't, there were so many stories that are that are referenced in both of these, especially from those early days of the comics, that I was like, Jesus, did that actually happen in the comics or is this something they've made up? And I'd go back and read it and I'm like, holy shit, that's cool. Like, how did I not know that, like, um, there's a character called Lucifer who plays a pretty important role, uh, also uh, known as the Mutant Master, um, in X-Men, early days of X-Men. I had no idea what the real context of this character was. I, I had, like, read a paragraph out of Charles Xavier's entry in the Marvel official handbook of the Marvel Universe, but never really understood it and seeing what that story was and then prompted me to go online and, and learn more about the comics, like, uh, so what these two things have prompted me to go back. I've got my copy of um, the Claremont issues of X-Men, uh, Claremont Burnish, or no, no, it's a Claremont um, Cochran, and then the Claremont, uh, what's his name, Paul Smith issues, and then the Burn issues kicking off. So I've got some terrific old X-Men that I'm going to be reading, and then I'm uh, tracking down uh, reasonably priced versions of the omnibus of... Uh, Jack Kirby and, and uh, Stan Lee, uh, Fantastic Four, just because I really feel like experiencing these in, in the original form is going to be great. So if, if that is, if you're in the same place where you haven't read those original issues, but you're familiar with those stories, these are great and affordable ways to to familiarize yourself with them and enjoy a, a good story woven together using that 
um, vast tapestry that uh, has been uh, created in the years of publication of Fantastic Four and the years of publication of X-Men. So anyway, that is, uh, those are my, the, the games I think that I would really, really love to, uh, to see, you know, a similar type of game go. So let's bring this episode to an end. All right, so that brings us to the end of this episode, which might be the first episode of 2021. So four months in, I managed to get an episode out. Not bad. Not bad at all. So as is always the case, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this episode, please do not hesitate to uh, shoot me a voicemail on Anchor if you have access to that platform. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings. You can find me on uh, by email. My email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. And of course, you can find a link to the description, I'm sorry, a link to the uh, Dungeon Musings Discord server where I'm quite active on any of the uh, episodes uh, in the last couple of years from the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. Um, Otherwise, thank you so much for uh, joining me through this uh, rambling journey, talking about the history of the Marvel Universe, the uh, emergent story that kind of came from from, uh, those monthly books and uh, how I think that that relates to the... uh, the virtue or at least the the benefits and positives that come from that um you know that pace uh with an ongoing uh, campaign uh if you are joining me during the current crisis i hope this finds you healthy safe and weathering the current crisis as well as can be expected i hope that uh, this uh gave you a couple of hours take or at least gave you an, an hour i suppose it's about an hour long episode uh take your mind off the troubles of our world and think about the uh, potential troubles you can get your heroes uh into And until we see you again, stay safe, stay healthy, and happy gaming.